Abel, please remain standing as we read from God's true word, the only source of truth. And we are reading today from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So here's the deal. Last week, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been preaching now through the Sermon on the Mount, which is this three-chapter-long sermon summarizing many of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, we started this set of sections in the Sermon on the Mount that all have this pattern where Jesus comes and he first says, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes something initially from the Old Testament, although later a few of them will just be popular sayings in his day. He quotes this commandment, and then he deepens it. He doesn't reject it, but he deepens it and challenges us by applying it to our hearts. And so last week, he does that with murder. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And then he applies that to issues of anger and hate and words of bitterness in our hearts. And this week, uh, he does the same thing, but with another commandment. Uh, which is in Matthew 5.27, he quotes the, from Exodus and the Ten Commandments and says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then he takes the idea of adultery and does the same thing, deepens it and applies it to our hearts. But here's the thing. So more so, I think, than when we talked about murder and anger, uh, because of this topic, I want to just name up front, this is hard, and we're going to talk about some hard things in a variety of ways. First of all, it's just hard, because whenever we talk about the Bible's understanding of sex and sexuality, it feels very out of step with the culture that we live in. Now, it's, it's, Here's the thing, like in Jesus's world, much of what he and early Christians believed was very out of step with the culture they lived into, right? In the first century, in first century Rome, it was not what we would think of as like traditional moral values or something like that. It was a world where um, men in particular, at least um, Roman citizen men, could sleep with whoever they wanted to and it would have been viewed as abnormal and aberrant if they didn't and um, yeah slaves and prostitutes and concubines and all of that were a normal thing. So in Jesus's world, for early Christians, this was a weird thing. And out of plenty of us, I think, remember a world or have some sense of the world that we were in, I don't know, 40, 50, 70, 80, whatever years ago, where we felt like it wasn't that out of step to say some of what scripture says. I don't know that it was always quite as comfortable a fit as we like to pretend, but certainly the Bible's views on a lot of these topics would have felt pretty familiar, um, and that's changed pretty radically in the last few decades. And so partly this is just hard because we have to wrestle with a set of things that is very different in terms of the story it tells than our culture. In addition to that, this is a hard set of topics that we're going to be discussing because it connects to many of our deepest desires and deepest hurts and in some cases deepest secrets. And I want to just acknowledge that too as we dive into this up front, that there's pain and hardness in a lot of what we're going to talk about when we talk about sex and sexuality as Christians. And also, I'll just name up front, I recognize this is hard because 
kids are present with us. And so parents, I will just say up front, I will try to be careful as we have this discussion, not to kind of needlessly create interesting lunchtime discussions for you. But at the same time, this is... It's essentially meaningless and that it doesn't necessarily mean anything. There's nothing outside of it that gives it any meaning, but it's absolutely essential. And if someone doesn't have it or doesn't behave in the ways that they want to in that sphere, then they're missing out on like the foundation of what it means to be human. Scripture would say that it is good and beautiful, but it is not essential to being human. That sexual union is not ultimate, that the union we're created for is union with God through Jesus Christ. And we can experience in this Sermon on the Mount. And I say that because um, in some Christian circles, there's, this, there's been this, just frankly, I think, kind of destructive approach to these discussions where because we want to protect the Bible's view of these things, we've used sort of enormous amounts of shame and guilt and legalism to try to force people into obedience in a way that just crushes them if and when they struggle and fail. And so it's important to say that even though the Bible calls us to this thing and we're going to seek to pursue obedience in this thing, we need to do it in a way that involves that, the freedom in life and joy that we are meant to have in Christ. And, so, and we're going to talk more about this at the end of the sermon, but I'll just say now, if, if you feel that, if you grew up in that cultural setting that leaves you with that deep sense of kind of guilt and shame about these things, I'll just, spoilers for later, but Jesus loves you and is delighted in you and has married himself to you in love, um, regardless of what your history looks like. I'll say that again in a few minutes. And then also, out of all of that, I say all of that because I also want to acknowledge that in everything we've said about Scripture's view, that also doesn't remove the reality that many of us have experiences in our pasts that are sources of enormous hurt when it comes to these things, whether outside of or within marriage. Some of us were victimized or abused. Some of us have done things that we deeply regret, and I know that piles on more of that shame and guilt. And so again, without spoiling the end, let me say to you too, if it's those things that you're wrestling with in your heart, Jesus delights in you, offers you new life and a new story, and loves you deeply regardless of your history. All right. But all of that said, that is how the Bible views sex and sexuality. Now let's zoom in on what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. So verse 27 again, let's start. He says, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus starts with the seventh commandment, right? Adultery is just in a basic way breaking that covenantal reality that we talked about within the Bible's view of sex. And he says that that's wrong, but then he applies it to our hearts as lust. And he says that anyone who lusts um, is already committing adultery in their heart. He, he specifically genders it, but that's not because it's only men and only women there. But we, we can hear that and wonder, okay, but what does that mean? What is lust then? So the Greek literally, there's not just one word. What the Greek literally says, and I don't do this that often, but what the Greek literally says is this. It says, anyone who looks at a woman in order to desire her. 
Anyone who looks at a woman in order to desire her is already committing adultery in their heart. And so what Jesus is describing is not simply attraction. It's not simply recognizing that a person is beautiful. That is not lust and in fact could be a good God-glorifying thing if we're simply able to look at the world and say God has created good, beautiful things in the world. But it is looking at a person in order to desire them. It is a sort of gaze that then becomes a sort of motion of the will and mind and heart that seeks to take possession or satisfaction or make demands of a person internally in our hearts um, regardless of what we then do externally. Jesus says when you do that, when you move to that taking possession, that sort of fantasized relationship, that sort of using in your heart of another person sexually that you are already in sin. And he adds to that some warnings that when we read it even this morning, I'm like, yeah, this is hard stuff. He says in verse 29 this, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now first, that is not a literal command. Jesus is not saying that if you sin, you know, with your hand, that you then chop it off in a literal way. And we know that because his disciples sin all the time, and he doesn't, like, pull out a knife, right? When Peter, like, uses his tongue to sin, Jesus isn't like, okay, like, let's, let's cut it out. But, but what he is doing there is trying to stress a couple of things to us. First of all, I think he's using this very jarring, serious imagery to simply stress to us that this stuff is serious because just like we said last week with anger, just like we're going to say in weeks to come, what we do with our hearts matters, but oftentimes we're tempted to minimize it when it doesn't in obvious ways, spill over into obvious actions. And so in part, he's just trying to say, like, look, no, this really matters, what you do with your eyes, with your heart. And the reason it matters is the other thing he's trying to highlight. The reason it matters is because we are whole-bodied creatures or integrated creatures would be another way that we can say that. We are integrated creatures, meaning that we can't isolate parts of ourself from the whole. We can't think that we can let this part of ourself kind of live in sin or behave in ways that are destructive, but not let it affect other parts of ourselves. Just like a hand or an eye, we are a whole body and every part of us is connected to the whole. So Jesus warns there against that sort of lust. So it's worth asking then if that's true, if, that's, if he's warning about it and we're these integrated holes and it's going to affect us, why is that? I think the answer is simply because what lust does is tell us lies or it's us rehearsing lies, rehearsing lies in ways that inevitably are going to shape um, how we think and how we act in the world. It tells us a variety of lies. First of all, lust tells us lies about sexual intimacy itself. By its very nature, the, the fantasy or the internal kind of like using of a person that someone does in lust is not relational. <laughs> and it doesn't have the sort of power and intimacy that true sex have. It doesn't have the complexity of another person being involved in this story. And so the more we live in that place of lies, the more we start to believe untrue things about what even just the physical act itself is. And connected to that, then it also just tells us lies about other people. The fantasy person that you're using is never as 
beautiful or as frustrating as an actual human being is, right? It's teaching us at a deeper level to to kind of view people only in terms of sort of what they're doing for us or how we're able to use them. It's objectifying in that sense, that that, that the the fantasized person is not a person but an object at some root level because it doesn't have the sort of volition and separate dignity and all of that stuff that another person has. And so it lies to us about what other people are like And it lies to us at a foundational level about what the world is like and our expectations and foundations of it are like. It lies to us about the world. In my fantasized world, and I don't just mean sexually, I mean every sense that I can kind of imagine a different life for myself, it's a life where the universe revolves around me. And it's about meeting my desires and things are easy for me and things are all kind of about me. That's just sort of intrinsic to that world that I create in my mental landscape. And the more that I rehearse that, the more I pretend like that is true, the more it's going to make me have a warped view of just the world that I live in because I view it as being about me. So for all of those reasons, what lust is doing is telling us lies about the world. But I'm going to point this out too because maybe you haven't noticed that in everything I've just described that means that when we're talking about that kind of lust that tells us lies you can do that in ways that aren't just about the sort of specific sexual encounter and just fantasizing about that right when it comes to sort of that imagined taking possession of a person in our minds and constructing that imagined relationship that can include other things it can for example include the fantasized relationship as a whole Right? The sort of part of that might be the sort of romance novel version of lust that isn't necessarily about the sort of explicit physical acts, but is about this sort of like exciting, dreamy, perfect relationship that we start to think, oh, that's what relationships are supposed to be like. That's what love is supposed to be like in a way that causes us to become unsatisfied with the person that we're actually connected to or with the relationships that we have if we're not married. Um, it also can just create this sort of comparison trap um, where there's another person. Again, not necessarily in terms of just like the physical acts of it, but in terms of the imagined relationship that I might have with another person. And again, the problem is that like that person is not real. Even if you think that it's a person that you know, right? It's a fantasy construction that you have that doesn't have all of the struggles and complexity of the real person. It's all in our hearts. And that is what makes lust dangerous. So that's Jesus' warning against lust. If you're feeling the weight of that, in a minute I want to zoom out again, and we're going to kind of move then to the love of God. But before we do that, um, in our world, if we're going to talk about this topic, I don't know how to not discuss it without talking about a specific way that this expresses in our world that's especially kind of challenging for some of us, but that we need to be open about, um, and that's pornography, right? When we're talking about lust, I know in a lot of ways in our world, there's this specific reality of pornography that gets very much tied up in this topic. And again, I want to be sensitive to little ears, and I want to be sensitive to the hardness of this, but let me just say a couple of true things about pornography within this discussion of lust. The first of the first true thing is just that it's everywhere and I want to kind of just start there because I think some of us can pre- want to pretend like this isn't a thing but look 
statistically, basically 100% of men and the vast majority of women in our world, and the younger you get, the higher the number goes, um, have been exposed to pornography. Um, stats are hard to get, but like according to one really big study, 44% of men and 11% of women reported actively using it right now, like, you know, like in, in the last month, I think the question was, um, and that number is probably a lot lower than the actual number, as it always is in those statistics. And that is also true in the church. I know um, some of you, I know your stories that you've struggled with it or are struggling with it. Um, in the past, I've had struggles with it. And I say all of that up front, not to make it okay. The fact that something is common does not make it not sinful. But to say, the first thing I want to say to you is that if you are wrestling with that, you are not alone in the world or here in the church. Um, there are people that have walked that road and are walking that road. A second true thing about pornography is that it does affect you. It does affect us. Um, it changes our perception of sex and of relationships and of life in the world, really is an outworking of everything we just said about lust in general. It's giving us a fantasy and lying to us about what reality is. Um, if you're in the middle of it, uh, it might, that might seem invisible to you. I think it's easy to think that it's not when you're kind of deep in it, and indeed, it might take a long time as you seek to disentangle that from your heart to really understand how much it's affected you. But brother, sister, if you are in that place, like it is affecting you in unhealthy ways. A third true thing is that you can find victory. That it is possible to find victory in struggles with pornography and struggles with lust, which is not to say that it's going to be easy or quick. It might take years of struggle. It might be very hard, but it is possible. And I know men here who have had deep struggles with it and have found that sort of victory um, and are living in those, that place of freedom. While I did not have the same depth of struggle as some of the brothers that I've known that have walked through that. Um, I, that's my story too, and so don't believe the lie that you're never going to be able to change or overcome it. A fourth true thing is that if you're going to find that kind of victory, you're going to have to bring light to the darkness, that you're going to have to bring light into the darkness of it, by which I mean you're going to have to stop hiding. Um, first, you're going to have to stop hiding it from yourself, that that you're in it, that you're struggling with it, that it's destructive. You're going to have to stop that thing where it's like, well, this isn't like a problem. You know, I can just stop this tomorrow. It'll be fine for months and years, and it never changes. Um, you're going to have to bring it to the light with other people. I don't mean with, like, every random person you meet, um, but you're going to have to invite other people into that as well and acknowledge that struggle. And if you're at a place where you're feeling that conviction and you're going to do that, let me give two specific pieces of advice there. The first is the, the, if you're going to share that with someone, don't have it be your spouse for the first person you share with. You will eventually have to have that discussion, and that's a good and hard thing, but find somebody, you know, if you're a guy, some other man, or if you're a woman, some other woman that can walk beside you through that. And secondly, when you bring it to the light, bring it all into the light. One of the things that is very common when you feel that prompting of conscience is to find someone and just confess like a little bit to kind of make yourself feel better. But that's not going to bring you to a place of victory, right? Just being, when you're just like, oh, every once in a while I like look at something I shouldn't, when really it's like every day, shine the light into it, bring it into the light. And in order to find victory, you're also going to have to 
commit to living in the light. It's not just a one-time thing. You're going to have to commit to a life of transparency and honesty in those things and have real, robust accountability, um, even on a practical level. I mean, just look. I mean, look, it's been years since I've had any real struggles with this stuff, but I still operate on it like there's software on all my devices and my wife can, you know, look in my phone whenever she wants and multiple people, you know, get sent stuff every day simply because we need that kind of transparency if, if that's a thing that could tempt us. So, to find victory, you're going to have to bring it into the light. But one last truth, and this is maybe not the one you expect, is that you can do all of that. You can um, admit that it affects you and commit yourself to changing and invite accountability and all of those things um, and still not find victory. (laughs) Because all of that being said, the ultimate thing that you're going to need in that place is a heart that is transformed by the love of God. And that's not just true of pornography specifically, but that's true of all lust and all sexual struggle. And that's where I want to zoom back in and add one more thing to what we said about the Bible's view of sexual intimacy. So remember, we said it's good, it's relational, it's powerful, it's not ultimate, it's covenantal, all that stuff. But there's one more thing we need to say if we're going to do justice to Scripture, and that's that sexual intimacy is theological in Scripture. It is theological before it's about any human act. Here's what I mean. When the Bible views love... Human sexuality is often seen as an image of divine love. That's true, first of all, even within God himself, the sort of loving dance of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit within the Godhead, um, where they kind of interpenetrate and intermingle and swirl around each other in joy and love. Like, that's an expression of the sort of intimacy that human is. I don't know what people have done to you. I don't know what you have done to other people. I don't know what you're struggling with right now. And Absolutely, you are called to seek to fight and pursue obedience and holiness. But what I know from Scripture is that you are, if you are in Christ, God loves you and he looks at you and he says, you are my perfect, spotless bride. You are, you know, he looks at you with delight and with deep affection and this sort of blazing glory of light. It is fixed on you regardless of what you've done and regardless of what you're struggling with right now. And yes, we are called to obey the commands of Scripture, but you can only hear and follow those commands within the context of that kind of love that God has for you. He loves you in that deep, profound way. That is the framework within which we obey. And the other thing all of that means is that God's love is then the pattern that begins to change our hearts and give us freedom from sin, including sin in this area. The more we experience it, the more our hearts will begin to be changed. The problem with lust, the problem with sexual sin is that, um, is that it feels really big when in fact it is a very small thing. It's, it's taking some of the most basic, most menial kind of pleasures of the world in a sense and saying like, this is the thing that it's all about. This is the thing that you were meant to give your life to. And the problem is that we get so trapped in it that, that we see it and it feels like everything when in fact it is just a small and passing thing next to the everything that is the love of God. That, that, that it's like... Here's what we need. It's, it's like the problem is that, 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 that lust and those desires and those things that we have, like 
if, we're, if you're in a dark room and you've got a candle, right, that little tiny flame, you look at that and you're like, that is fire. Like that, you know, that's light. That is this thing. That's what I'm longing for. That's what I'm drawn towards, right? The, you know, the, the moths are coming towards it in that dark room. But if you go out under the sun like that, you recognize that for what it is and you're given the freedom from needing that candle and obsessing over that candle and fixating on that candle because you've got the blazing glory of, of the true light and true heat of the sun in the sky. And that is what God God's love is meant to do for us in the face of our struggles with the brokenness of sexuality in these areas. God's love is infinitely greater than our cravings and our desires for things in this world. And the more that we gaze on that, and the more that we give ourselves to that, the more sin will lose its power over our hearts. Now I say that and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you just say, Jesus loves me and those struggles are gone. I'm not saying that the process will be easy or quick or go in a straight line. And in fact, part of being able to really see that light at times is going to require us to look at some dark places in ourselves, being honest with ourselves about what we're doing, being honest with ourselves about things that have happened to us. But our hope is that it is worth it because the process of that struggle, the process of that fighting is helping us more and more to open ourselves to that blazing beauty of the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ who is the great bridegroom who gives himself in covenantal, powerful, relational, good love to us as his bride. In the blazing glory of that love, may we be remade.